Welcome to our second episode of Season 2 on Real Crime NYC with Chris, Bill, and Pat. In today's Hot Topic episode, we discuss the ongoing investigation of six women found dead in the Portland area over just a few short months. Is this the result of a serial killer? Maybe yes, maybe no. But before we start, please remember to subscribe and follow Real Crime NYC so you can get all of our episodes. We have an exciting lineup of hot topics and murder investigations all lined up for season two, and it's free. Okay, so let's get right into it. Let's paint a picture before we get into the specifics of just generally what we have here. And what we have is six females found dead over a four-month period, all in rural areas within a 100-mile radius encompassing four or five different counties in northwestern Oregon. Three of them are in their 20s, two of them are in their 30s, and one is said to be the unidentified alleged native person is between 25 and 40. A lot of help that is. But that's the situation. Six dead people, 100-mile radius, all rural areas, short period of time. That sets the stage. And, you know, you know exactly where I'm going here. People automatically want to jump to serial kill. Pat, I got to say, I may be one of those people because that's exactly what I thought when I first heard about the circumstances surrounding these six deaths. With the limited information we have, it paints a terrible picture. It leaves us questioning a lot of things that took place. In this episode, let's dive deep into each woman's story. We can explore what we do know about each of their deaths, and let's see if we can uncover any similarities that might help shed light on this terrible situation where six young women were found dead. 911, We'll start with Christian Smith. She's a female white. She was reported missing, 22 years old. She's found on February 19th. What else do we know about this person? Pat, on February 19th, the first female was found, Kristen Smith, a 22-year-old. She was found in Pleasant Valley in a wooded area near Deodorf Road and Flavo Street. She was reported missing on December 22nd, and a cause of manner of death is not available. I think right now they may be leaning towards it being a homicide, and they're waiting for toxicology and other pathology reports to determine whether it is officially a homicide. Yeah, they've said it was suspicious, not necessarily. I mean, they didn't go so far as to use the word homicide. They said they're investigating as as a suspicious death, might come back with toxicology and could be an OD. We never know. If you look at how her body was found, it was found in a wooded area near an intersection in Pleasant Valley. You're talking about a cold winter up in Oregon, almost two months in the woods, in the cold. Um, it probably took them a little while to identify that body too. You know, yeah, it probably sure. took them a while to figure yeah, it, out who she was. I don't think that was just readily available. We don't know when she was killed though. You may not even be able to get an approximate range on her death, depending on how decomposed the body is. If that body is exposed to the elements, you have all sorts of things. You have the weather, the heating, cooling, freezing, thawing. You have predation by critters that are out there, birds of prey, animals, maybe eating parts of the body, destroying evidence, maybe taking parts of the body and distributing them throughout the woods. And some you'll find at a distance, some you may never find. If her fingers are still there, you're going you're gonna to scrape the fingernails. You're bag, also going to do- Bag it up. A, yeah, bag, bag up it, the hands. Bag up the hands. And you're going to do a sexual offense kit. It's a rape kit where you're going to look at 
certain parts of the body to try to obtain DNA from. You're going to look at, are there any wounds to the body, injuries to the body that you could see, any bones that were fractured or broken, they're going to look at. And again, it depends on how much of the body remained. If indeed she was out there that long, which I don't know the answer to that. But the bottom line is, if you think about it, they reported her missing on December 22nd. They probably were in communication with her. They wanted to see her for Christmas like any family would. Her family was very vocal. They seemed to have a relationship with her family. So in her situation, kind of venture to say she's not the situation where nobody knows her. I think the family's kind of up on her life situation. Her family set up a GoFundMe page for funeral expenses, and they actually were handing out missing person flyers while she was missing. So next up, we have Joanna Speaks, female white, 32 years of age. She was found again in a rural area. What do we know about her? On April 18th, Joanna Speaks... A 32-year-old female was found inside a barn and an abandoned property in Ridgefield, Washington, about 22 miles north of Portland. Yeah, and the body was found inside an abandoned barn in a rural area, and the investigators have determined that the body was dumped there, that the, the homicide didn't occur there. She died from blunt force head trauma and neck trauma. I believe that's the only one that's been ruled a, an absolute homicide at this point. A family last spoke to her, I believe it was her sister's, last spoke to her on March 15th. So you're looking at they found her body two, three weeks later. They're saying that she was homeless, she's a recovering drug addict. But one important thing, and this is why I think people are running with these uh, theories that these six bodies, may be, there may be a serial killer, is she reconnected with a school friend, Bridget Ramsey. And they just reconnected right before her death. They were friends in school, they reconnect. And now both of them are dead within months of each other. So I think that's why a lot of people are coming up with theories. Did they have the know, same dealer? Well, they frequented the same place, the same places that were known for drugs. And, and there's another uh, victim here, another woman that's found dead, that also frequented that same area that's known for drugs. And I think that's one of the areas where they're looking at this commonalities of these deaths. I mean, this is a woman, she's got three kids, she's down and out. If there is a serial killer, if some of these are linked together and this person's looking for somebody that's down and out, maybe he thinks that their family's, Joanna's family's not going to be looking for her and he selects her, you know, he picks her out to murder. Well, I'll offer that's... a different point of view on that. I think uh, we could pull any number of what ifs out of the air, but- here we have someone, I think you said she was a recovering addict and she was connected to other people and an area where fentanyl and overdoses are common. Well, people that are the most likely to overdose are actually the people who have been in recovery because their resistance to the drug is now way down, but they go right back to it. And when they fall off the wagon, they use the same dose they did before they went into recovery and they end up overdosing. So I mean, if we're going to uh, hypothesize what happened, I think that's just as likely. One thing I find interesting here is she's dumped in an abandoned bond on an abandoned property. Obviously, she has one trauma to the, to the head and neck. Whoever did this is familiar with that location. He has to or she has to live somewhere in that area. You got to look and say that the purpose is somewhere nearby. Somebody must have known it's abandoned and it would buy him time for somebody to, to actually find the body. 
Well, so, it could have also been a place where homeless addicts uh, found a nice place to, to camp. Right, but again, they have to know that it's abandoned. They have to know this is an abandoned barn uh, that nobody really frequents. So I'm going to drop him here. The murderer has to be somewhere around that area. Could have been a fellow homeless drug addict, although they said the body was dumped. So it actually could be someone that she's close with. Because most people are killed by someone they're close with. Right. It could be either of those things, and you just have to wait. You have to have patience for the toxicology to come back. You have to investigate all angles, just like you would in any other homicide. Well, and that's my point. Hey, I killed this this woman. What am I going to do with him now? Oh, I know there's an abandoned barn over here. Let me bring him in there. I'd be looking at a cell phone. I mean, did she have a cell phone on her? Did she have a cell phone at all? I look at the calls. I look at the text. And again, same thing. Witnesses in the area where she was dropped off. I would look at video. She had neck injuries. We discussed it previously when you have those neck injuries. Usually they're using their hands. And when they use their hands, many times they don't use gloves. Is Did they swab her neck for DNA? The rape kit who had uh, contact with her prior to her death. All those things, uh, trying to link up DNA. Well, blood fo blunt force trauma to the head was also found. So you may have a weapon out there. Might have recovered a weapon of some sort. There might have been many things around that could have been a weapon that was used for the blunt force trauma. But again, the problem is the body was not found where the homicide was committed, according to the investigators so far. So until they find the place where the homicide actually occurred, maybe they don't find that weapon. You know, a pipe, a baseball bat. And he transferred this body. I'm assuming he used a, uh, a vehicle to transport this body there. So maybe there's hairs, fiber from the vehicle. If Many times people have dogs, cats. There's a transference on, onto the victim's clothing. So there's a lot of different investigative and forensic things they could do with uh, Joanna's body that could lead them back to the killer. Sure, but if she was killed by someone she was close with or knew, it'd be great to get that evidence in the car. But, you know, the person's just going to say, of, of course, her DNA, her dog hair is in my car. She was in my car three times a week. But that's a lead, an important one. That Now, if you could link that same person to multiple women, it's something that detectives will run with. That's why it's so important to find out when she was last seen alive and who she was with. And we're talking about these people being homeless, possibly drug addicted. You might make an assumption that they don't have a phone. But in my experience, and from what I see, no matter how down and out people are these days, the one thing they have is a phone because they can't meet up with their dealer. Everyone's dealing through the phone these days. You call, you say, hey, I need something. Where are you going to be? Or well, come meet me. I need something. And they come and they meet you. Or even the fact that they want to uh, take advantage of certain social services if they're homeless, they all do it through the phone now. And sometimes they even get a free phone. You have a lot of government-issued phones. You know, from the government. So uh, that's a good thing for, for the detectives these days is that even people that are down and out tend to have a phone. With the phone, too, you could do um, geofencing. Sure. You could triangulate these dead women and try to connect their phones. Were they in the same areas at the same time? Were they in the same areas at different times? Did they frequent the same establishment? So all those things are going on. And and I do feel that they will solve this. I feel like whether it's connected to one of the other women, at this point, it's an unknown. Maybe law enforcement knows more. Yeah, this one could just be a dispute that got out of hand, turned into an assault, which turned into a homicide. And then he dumps the body trying to get rid of it. Very likely, very likely. So let's move right on. Uh, on April 24th, Charity Perry, a 24-year-old female, 
was found in a culvert at East Historic Columbia River Highway near the Ainsworth State Park. She was known to frequent the fentanyl market area in uh, downtown Portland. What's interesting about this is that, which kind of raises my antenna, is you have someone saying to the media, I know that Charity did not get to where she was found on her own. And the personal persons that put her there tried very hard to keep her from being found. That kind of raises the antenna. Now, I know that sometimes when people overdose, they're together, they overdose. Sometimes people try to take the body out of where they were so that law enforcement don't go to the location where they were using drugs. She's known to frequent an area where they openly sold fentanyl. So I think that along with people believing that somebody dumped her where her body was found kind of leads people to believe maybe it was more than, than an overdose. And again, the pathologist is going to be able to say whether it was foul play or not. We've seen this many times, uh, you know, bunch of people using drugs together. One of the ODs, you know, the other one doesn't want to get caught up in a police investigation, maybe get taken off the street, maybe arrested for something minor and then get sick because they can't use for a couple of days. So what they'll do is, you know, they'll try to hide that overdose. I mean, for all we know, this young woman was found with a needle in her arm or fresh injection point on her body, and all things point towards an overdose, but they can't say that until the toxicology comes. It's all still up in the air. Right. And I remember when fentanyl started up and coming in America, uh, prosecutors started making an attempt to prosecute the drug dealers when people overdosed on fentanyl and died. Title um, 19. Correct. When that started to happen, if a dealer saw one of his clients go DOA, they started dumping bodies because they knew now they were responsible. So that, that caused an uptick in the in the bodies being dumped as well. And, and the pathologist be able to figure this out right away. The blood pooling will be different. Um, the rigor mortis sets in, the blood pool shifts to the other side of the body. So they'll be able to figure out if it was a dump job right away. She also had mental health issues. She suffered from schizophrenia. So there's many reasons. You you have drugs, you got mental illness. But again, you know, she's found in, in a location where somebody dumped her body there, which, you know, law enforcement's gonna look at. And the person that did dump her there should be identified and prosecuted. I mean, nobody should be treated that way. Yeah, in New York that would be a minor charge, you know, unlawfully dealing with a dead human body or disposing of a dead human body. Be a misdemeanor. All right, moving along. On April twenty fourth also an unidentified female was found. They don't believe this is a homicide. All they know about her is she's 25 to 40 years old, five feet, 135 pounds, and either a native or Alaskan American. She's got medium length black hair, two scars on her lower left leg, two tattoos, and she's wearing rings, bracelets, and cleats. She's found on the Interstate 205 and Flavo Street, about three miles from Kristen Smith. Ironically, on the same day as Charity Perry was found. And the odd thing with her, she was found with all her jewelry on her body. That is kind of odd with junkies. They're going to want to take that jewelry, sell it, whatever they could do to make some money. And she had cleats on. I find that weird. You know, most people aren't wearing cleats unless if they're, they're playing That's, some sort of a sport. No, nah, that says to me homeless, maybe substance abuser, alcoholic. Found a pair of cleats and needed a need, pair of shoes. Needs a pair of shoes and found a pair of shoes. Yeah, she was found in a tent. I believe she was found the same day as Perry on April 24th. Yeah, yeah. Same she's, day. And, she's living outdoors. Yeah. And three miles away from Kristen. Yeah. I mean, they would still have an investigation on identifying her. 
mean, you have oh, to. And I, I think they have, have a very good chance. I mean, they have a very distinctive tattoo. They have a second tattoo that's not as distinctive, but still a, a, a very large tattoo. And she's got some uh, scarring on one of her legs that could also help identify her. And your favorite subject they're going to use, uh, DNA genealogy. Pat, you, uh, you're very familiar with that. and you know, Forensic genealogy, if they can't make a match to her DNA, possibly they put her DNA into all the public databases, and they could come up with a relative. But that takes some time. They have to give the family closure if, if she has family. I mean, who knows? This person could have been living outdoors and not have any family. But what you want to do is you want to know who she is. And uh, give some closure to the family. She may be uh, a missing person that's been reported missing, and it just hasn't popped anywhere and connected the two. But you want to bring closure. And just for a law enforcement person, you want to know who this dead body is. All right, moving along. On April 30th, we have Bridget Webster. Again, a female white, 31 years of age. Uh, This one was deemed uh, a suspicious death investigation. So what do we know about Bridget Webster? She's from Milwaukee, Oregon, near Mill Creek in Polk County. She's also known to frequent the Portland metro area. She reconnected with Joanna Speaks. She was friends with Joanna in, in school, and she just reconnected right before their death. They both frequented certain locations that I believe they're going to most likely be able to link up if they had cell phones with their uh, cell site data. Crazy thing about this, Joanna, Charity, and Bridget... All three of them frequented the same places. Hey, we might have deaths all off the same batch of uh, fentanyl. Extra strong uh, doses. And she's another one. She she vanished in early March, and she was found April 30th. What condition is her body found in? And depending on that, you're looking at the work of the pathologist during the autopsy, toxicology reports, fingernails, the rape kit again. All of that uh, would be done if they uh, suspect foul play. Yeah. So next we have Ashley Real. She's also a female white, 22 years of age. She was found May 7th, and that was deemed to be suspicious also. She disappeared on March 27th. She was found by a fisherman in Eagle Creek. So she was last seen at a fast food restaurant in Portland on March 27th. Um, Although it's not been ruled a homicide, there is- I believe they have video of that also. Yeah, they, they have video of her in that restaurant, and you know they, they feel like this is suspicious death. A fisherman found her body in a heavily wooded area in Eagle Creek on May 7th. Thank what you. I find interesting about this one is Kristen Smith, Ashley Real, and the unidentified Native American were all found in almost the same area, very close to one another. Yeah, also supports the notion of a, a hot dose of smack might have uh, taken out uh, several of these dead women. True, but why say they're suspicious if, if they were overdoses? Because they won't know until the toxicology comes back, so they have to investigate it as if it's a homicide. If there's no obvious cause, they're going to proceed as if it's a homicide and try to find out what happened. True, and it does take some time for the toxicology to come back, but I feel like law enforcement now is playing it very cautious, and they're erring on the side of There's no foul play until there is foul play found, meaning pathologist or the toxicology definitively. They're trying not to get anybody stirred up, the community stirred up. They're trying not to let the community panic. But I just find it was interesting 
you know, this body was found very close to the other two, although the unidentified Native American is deemed not suspicious, maybe an overdose. The other ones, you know, they kind of like leaning towards them being suspicious. Yeah, well, I think that's the the prudent uh, approach to take until you know differently, because sometimes you can't go back and recreate your investigation if you hadn't proceeded as if it's suspicious, and then you find out it is. There are things you're going to lose along the way. You're going to lose maybe some videos because they they get erased or taped over. You know, some of your forensic tests might not be as valid over time. You know, there's all sorts of things. That's why they have to proceed as if it is suspicious. But then why the unidentified Native American not suspicious? They were found within a week of each other. She's unidentified. They don't know who she is. They never spoke to her family. And they're saying she's not suspicious. But this one is suspicious, and they're found relatively within a close period of time. So I agree with well, you. Think about it. They they went out on a limb on that. Obviously, is what you're pointing out by saying exactly not suspicious. So there must have been something about that scene or the body that told them that it wasn't suspicious. I don't think they they would just pull that out of the air. And they're not giving it up. They're that could have been death. There. That could have been death by a natural cause. That could have been death by some kind of a an alcohol situation. That could have been death by exposure. To the elements, a lot of those things would have broadcast themselves when they investigated that at the scene. And maybe that's why they went out on a limb. But if they're being so cautious with the other ones, I doubt that they would just throw that out there on this one unless they were kind of sure. So to sum it up, there's a couple of things that need to be done here. They have to manage the information. Communication is key. And I think they're doing that. I've seen evidence of that. I mean, they've been talking to people and telling them the facts of the case so far. They need to manage and coordinate the investigation. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of agencies here, and it looks like they're doing that. They have to ensure each individual case is being investigated to its completion. But at the same time, someone's got to be looking at the big picture and putting all the facts together to see if any of them are interrelated, or all of them for that matter. But the one thing you're going to have to do, whoever's leading this investigation, is to have patience. And a very smart inspector once told me, a good detective boss knows when to have patience and when to make a push to get things done. It's so true. It's a delicate balance of pushing forward with an investigation, all while having the patience for waiting for those things that take time, like the toxicology results, DNA results, and phone records. So have patience when it's required, make a push when it's required, respect the skills of your detectives. And I believe at the end of the day, we're going to find out what happened here to these six dead women. And that's that. Stay tuned to hear more about these six women that were found dead in Portland, Oregon, on our next episode. And thank you for joining us for this hot topic on Real Crime NYC, sponsored by AMC Media. Hit subscribe and follow us for free access to our most up-to-date episodes. You can find Real Crime NYC on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. And we'll see you when we see you.